Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Um, we're tracking with Jesus as he is doing ministry, uh, his earthly ministry. He has been demonstrating his kingship, authority. The king of kings has come. He's taken authority over disease and defilement and death itself. He's been performing miracles, pointing to the fact of his deity. He is the God incarnate. He's been declaring the gospel. He's been asking, well not asking, he's commanding and calling people to, to repent and to follow him and to, to make him the priority. That's what the God's asked for, the number one priority. Luke chapter 9, he says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake, Mark would add, and the gospel will save it. The good news of the gospel, as we have seen in Luke, is for all nations, tongues, and tribes, for the marginalized, for the hurting, and for the broken. That's why we're calling this series Mission to the World. The good news that God himself has taken on flesh, taken on humanity, died on the cross, shed his blood as an atonement for our sins. Now, some of you, I'm going to take a little side, sidebar here. Some of you, when you hear that Jesus shed his blood on a cross, you may be wondering, why does that have to happen? Why does Jesus shed his blood for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins? We talk about the atonement a lot here. It's the center of what we do. You see, way back in the Old Testament, when sin entered the world, Genesis 3, it separated us sinners from a holy and pure God. See, purity and holiness does not mix with sin and rebellion and lawlessness. So rather than just leave us separated from him, God, our creator, in grace and love, made a way for us to approach God. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 17, way back in the law, God said this through Moses, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, God decided, not you and I, God decides how we ought to approach him. He is holy, we are not. And by his grace, he revealed to us, and he said, I've given you the blood to make atonement for your soul. Sin is a serious matter. Sin, by its very nature, threatens life because it's a treason it's treason against the author of life. And Leviticus 17, we see that blood is not only a symbol of life, but God says, I've given to you this blood. It makes atonement, not only because the life of the creature is in the blood, but it is the bloodshed, the life ending, that makes atonement for one's life. One life is forfeit, another life is sacrificed instead. What makes atonement on the altar is the shedding of substitutionary lifeblood. That's what the way God had designed us to come and approach him in the Old Testament. And all the Old Testament sacrifices, with all the blood that was shed, all the animals that were sacrificed, blood pouring out through, you know, on the altar, actually outside the temple, it must have been horrendous. Just a picture of how, how wicked and putrid sin really is, but also it's a foreshadow of the perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. Jesus, the perfect, obedient son, sheds his blood, dies on the cross for our sins, and now by his atoning life ending, 
blood-shedding sacrifice on the cross, we can approach a holy God. What a Savior we have. This is not some bloodthirsty Greek mythology God who demands blood. This is a God who takes on flesh himself and sheds his blood as an atonement for sin. That's a message of hope. That's a message of hope for the hurting, hope for the marginalized, the rejected. That's a message of hope for us today. A hope for those in bondage. Jesus Christ dies as sacrifice for our sins. And over the past few weeks, we've been seeing that Jesus is focusing, uh, um, really focused on what, what a full and unwavering commitment to him in the gospel looks like. Even when we go back to chapter 10, the 72 disciples come back excited. They took possession, they took, excuse me, authority over, over demon-possessed people. And Jesus is like, you know, that's, that's great, but what you need to do is rejoice ultimately in the gospel that your names are written in heaven. Or his gentle correction of Martha in chapter 10, who's anxious and troubled about a lot of things, but she has not chosen what Mary did, and that's just sit at the feet of Jesus. And then the clear warning that self-salvation, moral performance, will never keep your soul safe, never truly deliver you from the power and the possession of our enemy. We must replace the void in our souls with Christ, for he alone can fill us, he alone satisfies, he alone keeps us safe from our enemies and the control of our lives. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 25. And as we move through chapter 11, we learned last week that that can happen only when, we, are, when we, we fully comprehend, we fully read and understand and walk in the light, in the word of God, that we keep it and obey it. We find that in chapter 11, verse 29, as the woman yelled out, blessed are you. Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast of which you nurse. Jesus says, no, blessed are those who keep the word of God, who hear it, comprehend, and keep it. And he goes on to say that someone greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than the queen of the south has come. It is Jesus, the light of the world, has come to, brought, to bring light in a dark world in dark hearts. And, and there's no one else, listen, there's no one else that, that graciously forgives our sins. No one else can reconcile us to a holy God. No one else can deliver us from the strong man of the enemy and sin, Satan, death, and hell. No one can cleanse us and wash us with the blood that was sacrificed and put in order, listen, put in order... Put right things in order from the inside out. And that brings us to our text. Jesus will give this scorching denunciation. The, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the scribes, they were trying to do that cleanup. Clean the house, put things in order, walk in light with all external activities. That's the context. And then Jesus turns and he gives them Something to really think about. You heard Jeremiah read the text. That's why we do expository preaching. No preacher wakes up and goes, you know, I think I'll preach on the six woes of Jesus. We are right now. Simple request, scorching rebuke, a self-righteous rejection. It's a tough one, but hopefully we'll have some fun too. The narrative, gives with a, the narrative begins with a simple request. Jesus invited to come and share a, meeting, uh, a meal. Very, very popular, very common religious thing to do is as, as itinerant preachers and teachers and rabbis go from village to village, they meet other rabbis living in that village and they're invited to come to the home and have a meal. An invitation back then is a thing of fellowship, something like today, but even more then. 
communion, companionship. Usually they would invite other guests to come, other rabbis, and the men would gather and eat a meal together. Now remember, Jesus' popularity is growing, but so is his hostility toward him. It's mainly coming from these folks, the, the religious leaders, ones known as the Pharisees. Their name literally means separate ones. They were the separatists. Their goal in life was to keep the nation pure and faithful to God. Many of them spent their whole lives developing in this elaborate system of tradition to prevent anyone from possibly even thinking about breaking the Mosaic law. It strangled people. Their laws would strangle people. Too much for them to bear. Silly and stupid, we'll, we'll talk a little about it, laws. They had this idea that salvation somehow merged with separatism or separation. You need to separate yourself from the sinful world. You need to keep yourself separate from those sinners out there. Many were very zealous, very religious people. Very religious people. More moral than most. Come into contact with flagrant sinners would pollute themselves and their holiness. And therefore, they would practice washing regularly because heaven forbid you have a little bit of dust from some sinner on you. There's no question in my mind that when Jesus was invited to eat and they sat down and began to eat, there's no question in my mind that Jesus knew exactly what they wanted him to do. They knew that he knew the tradition and he completely ignored it and went and ate anyway. No doubt in my mind. Grabbing a spoon, grabbing those rigatonis, ready to eat. <laughs> no one's outside the rebuke and the call of God to repent. The woes that Jesus is going to pronounce upon these religious leaders is really a call of love to acknowledge their sin, that they can repent and be forgiven. One of the dangers the church faces then and now, comes from the, theologically, the theological elite, religious advocates, morally conservative people whose self-righteous attitude and perspective drives the heart far from God, not to God. And here's the deal. The Pharisees took what God said in his word about cleansing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, cleansings and washings pointing to our, our uh, symbol of our sin that needs to be washed. But this wasn't about personal hygiene. Nothing in the law said, hey, before you go have, you know, uh, your bagel and locks, like, wash your hands, according to the law. But because they were the pure ones, and they didn't want to be impure by hanging out with sinners, they had all these kinds of different laws about washing, right? Remove the defilement come in contact with the sinful world. It got so out of control, this whole idea of washing. Listen to what is written in the oral code. It's called the Mishnah. This is hysterical. You ready? The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist, and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean, but... If he poured both the first and the second beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. 
if he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. You're like, I can't follow all that. <laughs> don't go to movies. Don't listen to non-Christian music. Don't hang out with non-Christians. Don't go to public school. Don't talk to anyone who goes to public school. And don't talk to anyone who talks to anyone who goes to public school. Car mechanics, plumbers, all my fellow Christians. That's all I do. Separatism is about them and us. That's the mentality. Okay? They see sin, separatists see sin out there. That could be caught like if you sneeze and, and somehow I'm infected with sin. But what does the Bible say? Where does sin begin? In the heart. In the heart. Evil desires, fornication comes from the heart. And when all the dust settles, the real problem with the separatistic mentality, then and now, is hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't, uh, the Pharisees don't say anything to Jesus. They probably just snared at him, maybe when he didn't wash his hands. But he knows what they were thinking. He's the light-bearing messenger that's greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon, greater than the queen who went to see Solomon. Jesus says to them, you guys, listen, you cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. That's what hypocrites do. They act one way, but inside they are something completely different. That's where we get the word hypocrisy from the theater, the world of acting. A person would put a mask on and they would, they would pretend in the theater that they were something that they're not. Gave this false appearance. That's what hypocrites do. They disguise what's really going on, the true nature, their motives, and their feelings behind this false appearance that something is really good on the outside. These so-called men of God, these godly men of Israel, were what Jesus called them is two-faced. On the inside, they were rotten, greedy, sinful, lovers of acclaim, money, power. They were disobedient, and just they utterly ignored what actually pleases the Lord, kindness, mercy, and so on. In God's eyes, they weren't godly at all. And Jesus calls them out. Look what he says, you fools. At that point, he's not getting dessert. Apple pie is off the table. Did, he, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Have you ever grabbed a cup or a plate, maybe from the dishwasher when it was done, or from the cupboard, and you look and you get the cup, and you look inside the cup, and, it, and it's clean on the outside, but somehow that, that gook just stayed on the inside of the cup, right? Do you ignore it, eat from the dirty plate, or drink from a dirty cup? And for the two of you that actually do that, that's disgusting. But the rest of us, <laughs> yeah, I don't care. You know, we, most of us go, yeah, we're not drinking from this. And, and we, we clean it. And Jesus is obviously drawing a comparison between the Pharisees' mealtime ritual and what's really going on on the inside. And that's a sign of true hypocrisy. Is that the idea that everything on the outside is good, I'm okay. It doesn't matter really what's going on in my soul. The ones who go to church every Sunday, read their Bibles, give, their, give of their time and talent and treasures, go all kinds of religious activity, but not going on, not dealing with the truth of what's going on in their heart. Jesus said they're filled the, 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 these Pharisees are filled with greed and wickedness. Remember in our study from Isaiah, and it's quoted in the New Testament, God prophesied that this people, his people, 
draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They say yes to clean hands, but no to clean hearts. And Jesus calls them fools. What that means is they're blind to God. They're not listening and following and chasing after the Lord. Because they didn't even recognize that God created the outside and the inside. That he cares about the outside. And he cares a lot about what's going on in our hearts. He told, uh, God told the prophet Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's foolish for them and for us to try to somehow divide or split this inner and outer behavior or split into appearance and substance, this, this life of public and private, there's no place that it's not sacred. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 41, but, but give us alms, Jesus says, but give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, there are two ways to interpret that passage according to uh, some good commentaries. Uh, some think it's referring to an inner life in other words, give alms, give, give away the greed and the wickedness of your life. Clean yourself from the out, inside, let your heart be pure, and then the inside and the outside will, will be clean. Others think that he's instructing that giving of alms will be a, 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 a way to show the generosity, a way to release the greed. Not really sure. I think maybe both is being there. Like, you, in other words, get rid of that stuff. Show forth your, your generosity. Your heart has been cleaned. Or maybe it's, maybe it's just... When you give, that's what alms means to give, it should come from a pure heart, not from greed and wickedness. There's a place in Acts chapter 10, uh, Italian man by the name of Cornelius, an Italian centurion. The Bible says that he was a devoted man, a devoted man with, who feared God, there was faith, with all his household, he gave alms generously to the people. And prayed continually to God. So th that's signaling for us that he has faith. God would tell Peter that his faith, the generosity that showed evidence of his faith, made him clean. You see that faith working out in giving of alms. And God tells Peter to go and preach to him the gospel. Acts chapter 10. One commentator, I think he got it right, he says this. Giving to the poor was at the core of God's will for justice in the world. Giving alms, being generous with the poor, is not only the opposite of greed and wickedness, but a deep and genuine expression of a pure heart. When one's heart is pure, everything will be cleaned. End quote. Give alms. Show forth your heart purity. So the simple request. And now comes the scorching rebuke. Six woes. Woe is not only sorrow and pity for destruction that awaits the, this, these hypocrites, but it's, it's, it's also a, this righteous indignation a divine action akin to a curse, a warning of the catastrophe which is inevitable if you don't change direction. The only way to change direction is, wow, to turn, that means to repent. It's the strongest verbal form of judgment and warning that the prophets of the Old Testament gave. And now we see here the, 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 the true and better prophet, the perfect prophet, the greatest prophet, Jesus himself. And he gives six woes. The first one's about tithing. Tithing something commanded in the Old Testament. Members of the covenant community tithe their income to give to the support of the church, the, the, the community, the, the God's house, the priests. It was meant to be joyful offering. It was meant to do it out of love. 
But how they calculated the tithe with all the herbs made it very oppressive. This detail that Jesus talks about is not in Scripture. It's not required by the law, but they put it in there. I mean, tithing was fundamental. Tithing was, was elementary. As, as God's people should be tithing, the principle of tithing even today. Who knows what God would say to us who don't give to the work of the Lord. But their issue, if you notice, is not giving. He doesn't say don't give. It's this meticulous giving that is done for the purpose of self-righteousness. That's the issue. He's like, y'all can give 10% of your produce. You, you, you tithe your mint, you tie your rue, you tie everything. Everything has to be down to the exact 10%. But in that, you, you're missing, you're, 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 you're omitting the weightier matters of the law. He doesn't say don't tithe. That's what disciples do. But outward works were seen as just that outward, and the inward was still dark. J.C. Riles, they were scrupulous to an extreme about small matters of the ceremonial law, and yet they were utterly regardless of the simplest first principles of justice to man and love toward God, end quote. He doesn't say don't tithe, just keep the weight of your things. No, he says tithe, but don't think that just because you tithe, you've done everything that pleases the Lord. There is much more weightier things like justice and mercy, the manifestation of love, love of God, love of others, the basic response to the gospel. It's done by defending the weak, protecting the poor, welcoming strangers, helping widows, adopting for orphans, many other things the scripture calls justice in the scriptures. Yes, our heart, Matthew, Matthew 6 I thought about this. Matthew 6 does say, and Jesus makes it clear, our money shows us where our heart is. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But I think what he's saying here, what is also true, that our hearts reveal exactly where it is, how we treat one another. Neither loving God nor doing justice can be limited to 10%, right? Do justice. Love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strengths. All right, so th this, this virtue of love and justice should be practiced while you observe the giving to God's work. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 43. You love, oh, woe to you Pharisees. You love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. How much do self-righteous hypocrites love to be the center of attention? Much concern about outward, not inwardly. In those days, they would have seats set up in the front of the synagogue. And those who were notable would go and sit in the front facing the congregation. They had to be observed. They had to be recognized. for All that they thought they deserved. As I say, before we judge, let's relate. Do, do we serve the Lord with one eye on his glory, uh, maybe one other eye on our own glory? Hoping to gain recognition? Do, do we get our ultimate sense of self-importance from what we do? From our ministry? Especially in comparison to what other people may be getting? If we serve the Lord and we are resentful for what other people do and don't do, our eyes are not fixed. We're looking for something. And this is what Jesus is saying. The best seat 
the most notor, you know, notoriety, the most, uh, you know, you're the, you're the best thing since sliced bread. These people outwardly say, look how devote I am. And Jesus calls them out. Ouch. The human craving for, for, for this distinction actually exposes their show of devotion to God as being just that, a show. But the gospel comes. The gospel comes to us. How? By Jesus' condescension. He, without, without fanfare, took the lowest place. He alone stepped out of heaven's glory and took on humanity. He alone lived in a broken and fallen world and was crucified on behalf of sinners. And he alone then, the Bible said that God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, Philippians chapter 2. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, this teaching is the way of the cross. Humility. Verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What Jesus is saying, in that day, according to the law, actually, in Numbers 19, anyone who touches a, a graveside or, or, or walks on a grave, they become unclean. Now, in ancient Israel, they didn't have, like, gates around like we do, and this was the graveside, so it's easy to stay out of there. They had some of that, but some of their gravesides was actually along the road and in other places that they would have gravesides. So what the Israelites used to do, especially when people came into the community, they would whitewash, uh, Paul, uh, Jesus talks about that in, in Matthew, they would whitewash the, the, the top of the gravesite so that you would know that's a grave, I don't want to walk on it because if I step on it, I'm then unclean for, for I think seven or ten days. And what Jesus is saying, he accusing them of, and telling them that though, though you are so tirelessly trying to avoid defilement, the worst kind of defilement is what you really are, death. Decaying bones. And like other hypocrites and self-righteous people, they're walking over, they don't even know it. They're unaware of their spiritual death. They're dying on the inside. They're dead on the inside, excuse me. And the truth is, those who Walk on them, not even knowing, and those who follow them are doing what? The same thing, walking on the graves. So you're just like, you look great on the outside, but inside there's all kinds of death and defilement. Verse 45. And, and verse 44, 45, I mean, it, it would be so comical if it wasn't tragic. One of the lawyers, expert in the Mosaic Law, a scribe, answered him, teacher... And saying these things, you insult, you, you insult us too. And Jesus says, oh, I'm sorry. I certainly didn't want to say anything to anyone that might possibly offend anyone in this offensive culture we live in. No, okay, I'm offending you. Okay, listen to this, three more woes. Religious Bible-thumping leaders this is going to, okay, family? Verse 46, woe to you lawyers also. I don't want to, you know, I don't want you guys to miss out on this. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
Pharisees, separatists, lawyers. Lawyers would take the law of Moses and help the, the Pharisees construe and, and make these laws and make these uh, traditions, I should say, not, not, not the law of God, but these rules. They would study, they would interpret, they would transmit the Mosaic law and give it to the Pharisees. They would help develop these, all these stupid, silly rules that they had in those days. In Exodus, you know the, the Ten Commandments. One of them, of course, is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is funny. The lawyers say, look, you can't carry anything on an object if it's in your right hand or it is in your left hand, in your bosom or on your shoulder. However, you may carry something on the Sabbath if it's in the back of your hand or on your foot or in your mouth or with your elbow or in your ear or in your hair or between your belt and your shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in a sandal. Like, we got all this, what you can carry. And just in case you're not sure how much you can carry, how heavy something can be, it had to be equal or no heavier than a dried fig. Otherwise, you violate the Sabbath. It was permissible to carry something that weighed less than a fig on a Sabbath, but, but, if one inadvertently put it down and then picked it up again, he would be counted as doubling the weight and thus breaking the Sabbath. <sighs> In other words, I want to put all these legal requirements on people that God doesn't command, and yet you won't lift a finger to help anyone. Why do people make such silly laws? They want to feel good about themselves. I could do it. I do it. You should do it. One of the things that we have to be careful about, church, is mixing principles and methods. Someone once said, methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change, principles never do. Don't have a lot of time. We've done this in the past, but here's the deal. Open hand, closed hand. Some of you heard this before. When you put the principles and the methods in two closed hands, principles and methods, you got legalism. When you put principles and methods in both open hands, you have liberalism. Okay? You want to be careful. You don't want to put liberties and, and methods in closed hands, and you want to be careful not to take the principles of what actually is taught in Scripture and put them in open hands. Closed hand principles, open hand methods, closed hands, the gospel, the person and work of Christ, the cross, the authority of Scripture. Right? You grow, you read the Scriptures daily. You, 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 you worship together as saints. Guys, love your wife as Christ loved the church. All principles of Scriptures. Method? How do you share the gospel? Do you, do you use the four spiritual laws? Do you use the Roman road? When do you read the scriptures? Do you read in the morning? Do you read in the afternoon? Do you read the ESV? Do you read the New American Standard? Open hand. What songs do you sing? You have a band? You have an organ? How do you love your wife as Christ loved the church, guys? I don't know. Go ask her. She'll tell you. Legalism says this. It has to be done this way. They take personal preference methods to a whole new level and many of the self-righteous legalist and hypocrite attitude would actually go away in the church if we would just acknowledge the difference between the moral law of God clearly taught in scripture and our own personal preferences 
Even if there's strong preferences, I have strong preferences about things. But one thing I will not, I hope not to do, is say, this is what God commands in Scripture. But when your hands are both closed, you will come to the place of loading people with burdens that they cannot bear. So instead of loving people, helping people, extending grace to people, what legalists do, they add on burdens to people, laying down more of their own laws, and then put these extra burdens on people, and when they fail to do it, they don't do anything about it. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, there's nothing wrong, and we need to, in our discipling, in our living life together, teaching and, and reading the scripture, observing all that Jesus said. He said in Matthew 28, obeying all of his teaching. But there's something wrong when you're making rules upon rules upon rules and not showing grace and love to others. David Catchpole said this about those who teach the Bible. He says you have two options. To define to define, define in ever more detail, to impose ever more precision, to formulate ever more rules, and thus to lay even more burden upon those who would conform to the will of God, or to ease the burdens, to limit the rules, and to highlight broad principles. I think that's a good way of putting it. Verse 47, we'll move on. Verse 47 and verse 48 is how the religious leaders would build these tombs for the prophets, they would memorialize the prophets by these tombs. And it was a pious thing in Israel to do. You build a, you build a, a memorial to, to this prophet and to this prophet. And actually, what, if, if you look at the text, it says that the, the prophets who were killed by your forefathers. You see that? In other words, they say, look, let's honor these men. And, and let's, let's kind of make sure that they get the guilt for what they did. Because we have nothing to do with the murdering of the prophets of the past. And Jesus says, no, actually you do. The way you're treating me, the way you're treating the one who is before you, you are joining the life and, and the rebellious nature of the past who would kill the prophets. You're doing it right now. You consent to the deeds of your fathers. They kill them and you build their tombs. What he's saying is your rejection of me, the word of God, before you incarnate is the same as rejecting or even worse than rejecting of those in the past. In verse 49, he actually goes one step further. It says this in verse 49. He's looking down the road. He's talking about the, the sovereign will of God. He's talking about the wisdom of God, the purposes of God. Look what he says in verse 49. Oh, let me turn the page so I can get there. Therefore, you build the tombs. You join them in their killing of the prophets. You think you're doing the right thing. You, you think you're honoring them. Actually, you've got the same spirit they have. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. In other words, those that are going to be associated to my, with my ministry, Jesus is saying, you're going to kill them as well. I'm going, to, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you the apostles. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you my will. And you will what? You will do what they have done to the ancient prophets. You will kill them as well. You will kill them as well. I mean, think about that for a minute. God knows in advance that he's sending the prophets and the apostles to teach his people, and they're going to kill him anyway. You're like, I'll do that. No, maybe find somebody else, right? There's a long history from Abel to Zechariah, and between them, all the other prophets. And he says, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Jesus saying, listen, in all of human history up to this point, this generation that I'm speaking to now is the worst of all, not because they had more sin, 
or inherently more sinful, but because they received more light from God than any other generation in all of antiquity. Too much is given, too much is required. They have the Old Testament prophets. They have the Old Testament scriptures. And they have the King of kings, the Son of God, who came to his own and his own knew him not. What a privilege. Think of it in that culture, in that day, in that history, at that moment. They even had John the Baptist. Jesus says the greatest of all prophets. They had the cross, the empty tomb, the apostolic writings. And Jesus says, you know what? They rejected. You're rejecting me and you are just like your forefathers. And now in verse 52, he gets to the final woe. Family, in some ways, as I was studying this, this is the most, for me anyway, I don't know if it would be for Jesus, but this is the hardest of them all. The final woe. Woe to you, verse 52. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. You have the scripture. You have the truth of the word of God. You have what Paul told Timothy, his grandmother taught him, the scriptures to make you wise unto salvation. You're supposed to lead people to redemption and salvation. You are an obstacle to them. Rather than supply the key to knowledge, they actually took it away. They blocked it. That's scary. Woe to the, to the so-called pastors of our day that make the knowledge of God, the redemption and salvation of God, all about stuff that God gives you rather than in God himself. Woe to the preacher who searches the scripture to find a pretext to tickle his and his congregation ears. Rose to the preacher who, who don't properly bring an exposition of the text to let God speak, but make it about himself, his political, social, or personal agenda. But for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples, bless the preacher who does what Paul commands young Timothy, 2 Timothy 5, 2, 5, 2 15. Do your best, he says to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Chapter 2, verse 15. In chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Paul goes on to young Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. This simple request, come and have dinner, has now turned into six woes to the Pharisees and to the scribes. Family, it is my hope, as we will go on to our next point in a moment, but it's my hope, as, as God just worked me over this week, that God will show you ways in your life where maybe you have exalted your personal preferences, or maybe you look down on other people. Or maybe your expectation from someone is this way and that way. Family, remember this. Don't look at the outward appearance only. You could have someone come to faith in Jesus Christ, repent of the sins, who grew up in a very moral family, mom and dad, all that stuff. And then you could have someone that came in off the streets 
And both of them born again, children of God, redeemed, saved, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll tell you, their sanctification will be different. We need to be careful. I need to be careful. Amen? Simple request, scorching rebuke, and finally the self-righteous rejection. Verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They want to kill him. And you're wondering, really, I don't, they only just blasted both of them with six woes. I don't know what their problem is. Bunch of hypocrites, self-righteous legalists. They weren't happy with Jesus, and they weren't happy what Jesus was exposing in their hearts. Yet again, at any point, that those moralists, religious leaders, zealots, self-righteous legalists, whether it's you or them, acknowledge, confess, and repent of the sins, of their sins, God will forgive them. God will forgive you. It's not simply about rebuking them. It's about speaking the truth in love so that they see their sin and they see their rebellion and they run to their Redeemer. Listen, what every hypocrite needs, what every self-righteous legalist needs is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can change, transform us from the inside out. Religiosity is man's attempt to earn, to behave, somehow work their way into grace, into a relationship with God. They think that they are secure and accepted by God by what they do and by what they don't do. Human religion at its best. And really all they're doing is deceiving themselves and trying to fool other people so that they think that they are somehow righteous and good and holy. But only God can do that. Only God can give a new heart. I'm not talking about a sinless heart. I'm talking about a, a clean heart that knows forgiveness, that knows love, that knows acceptance because of Christ. The new heart comes from the saving work of Jesus Christ. On the basis of his death, bloodshed on the cross, resurrection from the grave. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit who makes Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith, Paul says, and who is ever now working in our lives who changes from the inside out. As we drink deeply of the gospel, the person and work of Christ, there is remedy for the hypocrites, for the self-righteous, and for the legalists. You know, people say that the church is filled with hypocrites. Because it's filled with sinners. Well, that's not what a hypocrisy is. If you claim to be without sin, if you act like you're without sin, and you sin and you will, that's the sin of hypocrisy, the fraud. Saying something that you are that you're really not. The gospel teaches us to put away hypocrisy. We do that by being honest about our sin, honest about our struggles, honest about our sinful desires that rage war against our Flesh. Why? Because we're loved, we're accepted, we're forgiven, not by what we do or by who we think we need to be, but by the precious atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy is, is concerned about the outward appearance. The gospel tells us that we're dependent upon the love and the graciousness of Christ. It is the gospel, the new heart, that expresses itself in new life. Yes, of course, all of us need to change from the inside and the outside. Absolutely. But it has to start from the inside out. Clean hands are a good idea. Thank you, COVID. Go wash your hands. Like, I, I don't know, all of a sudden people need to be reminded to wash their hands, but I'm okay with that. It's about the best thing that came out of the whole thing. But what makes our lives clean is not 
an outward washing that the Pharisees thought, but the inward cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ made real to us by the Holy Spirit. Paul says you had various passions, Titus 3, malice, hatred, hurting one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The gospel drives out self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and legalism. You and I cannot, we will not ever live the required life God commands of his creation. Without Christ, dead in sin, dead in trespasses, slaves to sin, guilty of treason against our creator. Therefore, we could never look down on anyone. Why would we actually think that we could learn and somehow deserve grace when the Holy Spirit or the Holy God reveals to us our sin, our need to be washed and cleansed. We know that's not the case. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for the good of his creation, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin, that atoning sacrifice, Leviticus 17, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Christ, you and I, we might become the righteousness of God. In the gospel, by the perfect life of Jesus, his blood substitution, his sacrificial death, glorious resurrection from the dead, we are forgiven. And the righteousness required has been given to us by his perfect life, imputed to our account by faith. When you see that, when you see that you could never earn it, when you see you could have all the rules in the world, you'll never make it. When you see that... that, that what is really going on in your life and that you could trust in Christ. You could be honest with and you can honest with yourself. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. We can't make any rules. We can't hide behind any mask. We can't try to gain righteousness. We can't have this holier-than-thou attitude. You can't make up these silly laws and try to earn your way into pleasing God. Why? Because you are loved. You are forgiven. You are accepted already. Because everything that needs to be done has been done for you in Jesus. On the cross, our God and Savior, as they were nailing him to a tree, after the beating he took, and they nailed him to a tree, they hoisted him up on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're walking around the tombs, they're unaware. And yet God loves and forgives. Forgive them. He loves and he will forgive you. Listen, don't attempt external reform. It'll never get you anywhere. It'll lead to frustration and in the end, it'll lead to condemnation. Open your heart to the love and the grace of God. Let him come in and take your dead old heart and make you new in Christ. Forgiving you and making you clean. Christ is the answer. And we're going to respond. The band's going to come on. You guys come up. Now listen to this song we're responding to. Responding with, Father, I come to you and boast of deeds I've done. In my pride, I strive to earn the favor Christ has already won. 
He alone pleads my acceptance. He, all my works aside, I come with empty hands and I cling to Christ. Will we sing that song? Will we let go of all that religiosity, all that self-righteousness, all that legalistic requirements and just run and cling to Jesus? That's my open prayer. Let's stand and pray. And God, now just in the quietness of our response as we bow our heads to you. God, I think if we're all honest, there's a little bit of hypocrisy and legalism and self-righteousness in all of us. Help us, Lord, to drink deeply of the truths of the gospel that we may see the beauty and glory of Christ. And although, Father, your light shines our sin and shame, it also reveals the cleansing power and work of the blood of Jesus that cleanses and washes us, delivers us, and brings us into your beloved family and kingdom. So God, help us to respond in worship as we sing this song to you. In Jesus' name, amen.